It was a mid-September Saturday afternoon in 1956 when a young woman by the name of Jean Challender put on a bright red raincoat and wheeled her bicycle out of the garden. She had decided to make the most of a day off from work and head out on a little adventure. Her husband of only three months was working at his shop, so Jean's plan was to make her own way to some local farmland to pick blackberries. It should have been a lovely day, spending time in the beautiful Cardiff countryside, followed by a spot of baking. Making a crumble or a pie with the wild fruit she had picked, to enjoy with her husband when he returned from his long day later that evening. What actually transpired was one of the most brutal murders the Welsh capital had ever experienced, sparking the hunt for a killer that 65 years later is still unresolved. Not a lot is known about Jean Challender. She was born in 1923 in Cardiff. Her parents owned a newsagent's in Mysacoid Road in the Heath area of the city. At some point she moved to London and worked at the Ministry of Supply. The Ministry of Supply was a department of the UK government formed in 1939 to coordinate the supply of equipment to all three British armed forces. She returned to Cardiff after marrying her husband and transferred to the Cardiff office of the Ministry of Supply and continued her career in the civil service. Her family, friends, colleagues and acquaintances all speak extremely highly of Jean. It seems she had a character and disposition that people found warm and endearing. Her life, her potential, all that she was and might become and achieve in the future was cruelly taken from her that day. On the 15th of September, 1956, Mr Howard Anthony Challender, or Tony as he was usually known, returned to his home on Southminster Road in the Penelan area of Cardiff. It was a Saturday, and he'd been working hard all day as a grocer at his store on nearby Wellfield Road. He was expecting his wife of three months, Jean, to be there waiting for him. He didn't know her plans for the day, but Jean was a homebody, and even if she spent the afternoon out and about or seeing friends, she was always back by tea time. When he'd left for work early that morning, he waved goodbye to Jean. It would be the last time he ever saw her alive. When Tony could find no trace of his wife in the house or any clue as to where she might be, he began phoning friends and family to see if anyone knew of Jean's whereabouts. No one had seen her. After waiting a few hours, he called the police later that evening. The police were immediately concerned as a disappearance like this was so out of character for Jean. She would always phone ahead if she was visiting her parents or friends and knew she was going to be running late. Police wasted no time and a description was put out in the press 
asking for people's assistance in locating Jean. She was described as 5 feet 5 inches tall, with short brown hair and a medium build. She was 32, nearly 33 years old, and wearing a red raincoat. They also added that Jean was, quote, attractive, end quote. It was an anxious wait for her friends and family, and unfortunately, nothing positive came from the appeal. Five days later, her body was found by a 16-year-old Blackberry picker in a place known as Peggy Giles's Fields, near Llyna Grant Farm in Lanedin, on the outskirts of Cardiff, only about three kilometres from her home. It appeared that Jean had taken advantage of a pleasant late summer's afternoon and decided to go blackberry picking. According to her husband, she had never done this before, which is one reason why it took so long to locate her body. The only sighting of Jean on the day she disappeared was as she rode her bicycle along Wellfield Road, but she was travelling towards her home rather than in the direction of the farmland and fields where the blackberry bushes were. They simply didn't know where to look for her. Jean's body was found 400 metres from Lanedin Road, which at the time was a small country road heading out of the suburbs of Cardiff and into the countryside. She had entered a field from a gate by the road. Her bicycle was found, presumably where she had left it, as it was still locked up about 18 metres from the entrance to the field. She had walked through the first field and crossed into a second. Her body was found at the top of this second field, in a half a metre deep ditch amongst brambles, just on the edge of some woodland known as the Plantation, or Peggy Giles's Woods. Initial reports suggested there didn't appear to have been a struggle. There was a bag of blackberries still around her wrist, and a few berries were scattered on the grass near the body. Straight away, the local police could see that this investigation was going to require specialist help. The Glamorganshire and Cardiff City Police made the unusual decision of seeking assistance from London Scotland Yard from the beginning. The investigation was led by Detective Superintendent John Mannings of Scotland Yard. He was originally from Cardiff, so brought his specialist experience as a detective and his knowledge of the local area. The body wasn't removed that night so that a better inspection of the crime scene could be undertaken in daylight. Mannings led the team the following morning, consisting of Detective Sergeant Brewster and a Home Office pathologist, Dr. C.R.E. Freezer, as well as a team from the Forensic Science Lab in nearby Lanishan. The cause of death appeared to be trauma to the head. Her injuries were so severe and her face and head so badly mutilated that at first a shotgun wound was suspected. However, very early on, a billhook was put forward as a likely murder weapon. A billhook is a versatile cutting tool used widely in agriculture and forestry for cutting wood and material, such as shrubs, small trees and branches. Billhooks come in different sizes and lengths and they resemble a machete with a curved point at the end of the blade, similar to a sickle. It was surmised that Jean had been killed at the top of the field and her body thrown into the ditch, 
where it lay tangled in brambles. Her body was fully clothed, and it was unclear if a sex crime had been committed. There were a few odd details regarding the position of the body. Her arms lay across her back and her legs were crossed. Initially, Jean's shoes could not be found. They were not on her feet and there was no sign of them near the body. When the body was moved, both shoes were revealed under her left shoulder, resting on top of the brambles. Jean's family were understandably devastated at such a horrific end to their search. The pain was even sharper as Jean had been found on Thursday the 20th of September, what would have been her 33rd birthday. Her mother said in the Western Mail newspaper that she knew Jean was not alive on Monday as she would never have gone that long without contacting her family or friends. Jean's mother was in total shock. This was something you hear about in the news, not something that happens in real life to a family like theirs. A school friend of Jean spoke of her integrity and cheerfulness. She described her as someone who was quiet but could be depended on by others. Jean was a person who had a kind word and a smile for everyone. It wasn't only her family who were at an utter loss as to why Jean had been the victim of such a violent and seemingly motiveless attack. In the days following, investigators struggled to develop a theory of what had happened on that Saturday afternoon. The matter was further complicated after reports of unusual events at Linagrant Farm on the Sunday following the discovery of Jean's body. Linagrant farmhouse stood on the other side of some woodland, about 180 metres from where Jean's body had been found. It was an isolated spot, far from other residences. At around 9 in the evening, on Sunday the 23rd of September, the weekend following the discovery of Jean's body, the son of the farm manager, an 18-year-old Gareth Thomas, was sitting with May Thomas, his bride of only a few days, in one of the downstairs rooms of their farmhouse. May glanced up and saw someone looking in through the window. Gareth went outside and reports he saw an unknown man standing in the courtyard, about five metres away from him. The light from Gareth's lantern illuminated the stranger, who turned and fled into the woodland. Gareth claims he didn't pursue the man because he couldn't leave the house. His younger siblings were in bed and he had promised to look after them. Gareth described the man he saw as being tall, around 5 feet 11 inches, in a darkish grey suit with black bushy hair. He initially thought it might have been one of the investigating detectives, yet later said he resembled a man he had seen loitering around the farm on the Saturday Jean had disappeared. The family also spoke of hearing shuffling footsteps around the farmhouse at night in the days after the body was found. The search for clues continued, with police only saying they were pursuing several lines of inquiry. Dogs were brought in to search the fields, and the public were asked to identify anyone who had left Cardiff on the evening of Saturday the 15th of September, the day Jean was last seen alive. House-to-house inquiries were carried out along the River Rumney, 
which flowed about 400 metres from the crime scene, and the river itself was dragged. Boats with electromagnets were brought in to search for the murder weapon, as one potential theory was that the killer had escaped by catwalking across the river on a sewage pipe, and may have thrown the weapon into the water. The search finally seemed to bear fruit when two Alsatian dogs searching the fields found blood-stained clothing. After forensic tests were performed on the clothing, little importance was given to the find and the clothes were deemed unrelated to the case. A couple of weeks into the investigation, the police began to release details of people they were looking for who they hoped would be able to assist them. It was estimated that there were around 100 people within 400 metres of the murder, but there were three in particular that they wanted to talk to. The first man is described as being between 30 and 35 years old, around 5 feet 9 inches tall, with a slim build and a thin face. He had black, greased, wavy hair. He was wearing a dark suit, either black or grey. The second man they were looking for was wearing a red beret, like those worn by British paratroopers. This man was described as being around 30 and 5 feet 6 or 7 inches tall. He was slim, weather-beaten, sun-tanned and in need of a shave. He wore a muffler with a light grey pinstripe jacket and dark trousers with red piping down the leg, like a postal worker uniform. The third was a male youth dressed in grey who was seen walking quickly around 400 metres away from the crime scene at roughly 4.30pm on the Saturday afternoon that Jean went missing. He was thought to be from outside the local area. An 18-year-old man, matching the description of this third person, was located and interviewed by Lancashire Police in Manchester, England. He had been someone who had left Cardiff soon after the murder. However, within 24 hours, the police there confirmed that he was unable to help them with their inquiries. The forensic analysis of the crime scene was thorough, and around three weeks after the murder, a fingerprint was reported to have been found. The police didn't reveal where the print was found at the scene, but they did say that the print itself was unusual. The police didn't elaborate further, but it could be speculated that the print showed a scar or an odd marking present on the fingertip. It could also infer that the pattern itself is uncommon. The print was compared to those of the people in Jean's life who might have touched or handled her possessions, including her husband Tony. No match was found. The print was also compared to those on file locally and at Scotland Yard but with no success. During the first month of the investigation, the police had lots of tips and made a lot of inquiries, around 5,000 in total, but they just couldn't come up with a solid lead. As well as the three persons of interest described, evidence came to light that two men in their 40s had been seen in the local area with guns, but there was no report of them ever being traced. In mid-October, a month after Jean had been killed, the focus of the investigation began to follow a new direction. Several witnesses had come forward to say that on the afternoon of the day that Jean was killed, they'd seen a man cycling furiously away from the field, 
He was described as aged between 26 and 32, athletic-looking with broad shoulders and a sturdy build. He had a fair complexion, was clean-shaven and had long, fair hair brushed back close to the head. His hair was also quite full on the sides of his head, which was unusual for the time, making it memorable. The cyclist was wearing a brown and fawn raglan-type tweed overcoat, buttoned up at the neck. On his bottom half he wore brown corduroy trousers and canvas shoes with thick crepe soles. The bicycle he was riding had upturned handlebars and looked too small for the man. The feeling amongst the investigating officers was that information about this man was being withheld from them. A police artist was brought in to compose a portrait of the cyclist, though there is no evidence that that picture was ever released to the public. Local barbers were quizzed about the man's unusual haircut, and fair-haired men were questioned all over the city, around 60 in total. Tailors in the region were also talked to in case they remembered selling or making the particular brown tweed jacket the man was seen wearing. Twelve women came forward to say a man fit in the description of the fair-haired cyclist had accosted them in the last 12 months in various locations around Cardiff. A man described as a peeping Tom and also fit in this description was reported as acting strangely in a wood in the Lanrumney area only a few kilometres away on the day of the murder. With this new information, police began to suspect that their man was indeed from Cardiff and that he was still in the area. When a man also answering to this description was said to have bought a billhook from a second-hand store, either on the day of or the day before the murder, the police knew they were onto something. Another attack on a young woman gave further credence to their suspicions. 18-year-old Maureen Dix was walking home from an evening out with friends. She was only a few metres from her house when an attacker sprang at her from behind, hitting her over the head with a blunt instrument. Maureen fought back and the man fled on his bicycle. Speaking to the Western Mail newspaper, Maureen's father, John Dix, said that she had fought off her attacker with her handbag. He praised her bravery in a very understated way, mentioning that she had damaged her handbag in the process. It is worth noting that Maureen described her attacker as having dark hair, but obviously the person could have dyed his hair a darker colour, or possibly his hair appeared darker in the night, especially if it was wet or greased. Of course, there is the possibility that it wasn't the same person at all. Regardless, police never confirmed whether they thought the two attacks were related. At the beginning of 1957, and four months after the murder, the inquest into Jean's death took place. An inquest takes place when the death of a person is viewed as being unnatural. During the inquest, ten witnesses gave evidence, and investigators detailed the crime scene forensics scientific evidence, medical tests, and the discovery of the body. It was reported that more than 8,000 pieces of information had been gathered, with over 6,000 interviews and 20,000 miles covered in pursuit of the killer. The inquest confirmed that Jean had suffered terrible injuries to her face. She had a broken jaw and several broken teeth. She had been hit 12 to 20 times, 
there were a large number of cuts on her forehead where she also had a broken bone. The base of her skull was also cracked. The most prominent cuts were approximately 15 centimetres long, although there were smaller ones that were only about half of a centimetre. The cause of death was given as fractured skull. There was no evidence of a sexual assault. A verdict was given of murder by persons unknown. A detail which adds further intrigue to this cold case is the letters that were written by an unknown author or authors referencing the case. Research for this podcast has shown that there were two letters written, but there may have been more. The first record of a letter is in 1957. It was addressed to Sidney Silverman MP. He was a Member of Parliament for the Nelson and Colne constituency in Lancashire, England. He was not a local Welsh MP or local to the case. He was a renowned leftist who opposed capital punishment. In fact, in 1956, he had proposed a private member's bill on the abolition of the death penalty, which ultimately failed. The death penalty in the UK was finally abolished for murder in 1965. It was perhaps for this reason that Sidney Silverman was chosen to receive this letter. The letter was taken seriously by police. I cannot find evidence of any details ever being released, but it was thought to have been written by the murderer himself. Allegedly there were details included that only the killer would have known. The next reference to a letter is at the end of June 1957. This letter was written by someone who claimed to have information about the murder through a conversation they had overheard. In a newspaper report in the Western Mail from Saturday the 6th of July 1957, it states that the letter was sent to Scotland Yard. The police claimed the letter could be invaluable and promised anonymity to the author and that if they came forward any information would be treated in the strictest confidence. No one ever came forward, but a new line of inquiry began in the Port Talbot area, around 50 kilometres west of Cardiff. Forestry workers in the Bryn and Margam forests around Port Talbot were questioned, and the inference from police was that they were not looking for the suspect himself, but the person behind the letter. At this point, at least publicly, they were saying that this letter writer wasn't the killer. Police did not reveal anything from the interviews, other than to say the trip was not a complete waste of time. In August 1957, the first anniversary of Jean's murder was on the horizon, and the police had made no arrests and had named no suspects or persons of interest in the case. It was at this time that a break in the case seemed to come at last. A woman from the Adamsdown area of Cardiff was interviewed by police, following which a 40-year-old man was interviewed twice by Detective Superintendent Mannings over the course of two days. An identity parade was set up, and two women who were reported to have seen the fair-haired cyclist on the day of the murder were brought in. They were unable to identify anyone. Mannings returned to London shortly afterwards, and Norman Davis, Chief Detective Inspector of Glamorganshire Police, said the investigation would continue. 
Sadly, over the coming months and years, news of the investigation got less and less. Sometime in 1958, Chief Detective Inspector Davis led a probe into Cardiff Prison. After a tip from a former prisoner, several inmates were interviewed about the murder, but the detective left empty-handed. Other inquiries led police to pursue leads in Bristol, Manchester, London and even as far afield as Toronto, Canada. The trail, however, went cold and the identity of Jean's killer remained a mystery. So let's now take a look at some possible theories of who might have killed Jean Challenger. From the off, the police seemed unsure which direction to take this investigation. There were so many different people in the vicinity on the day and no clear motive for the murder. I'm going to outline some possible theories regarding what might have happened. And although we are firmly in the realm of speculation, I will be basing these ideas on the evidence from the investigation at least the evidence that we are privy to. While anything is possible, I will look at probabilities and keep wild guesswork to a minimum. First of all, what kind of person could commit a crime like this? I'm not a psychologist or criminologist, so these suppositions are purely based on my reading and research and analysis of this crime. The initial investigation of the crime scene suggested and then the inquest confirmed that there was no evidence of a sexual assault. However, that does not mean that there wasn't a sexual motive to this crime. The removal of her shoes may mean that the perpetrator was disturbed before he was able to sexually assault Jean. Or could perhaps the removal of the shoes hide a sexual motive in and of itself? I think it highly likely that there was a sexual component to this murder. The overkill used in the assault, with up to 20 injuries sustained to the head and face by a machete-like object, could certainly be seen as the act of someone who hated women and wanted to obliterate his victim's identity. The overkill and lack of obvious sexual assault could also point to the offender being impotent. The amount of violence used in the assault certainly points to someone who has engaged in acts of extreme violence before and there is little doubt that he would have been violent towards women again in the future. I also believe that people in his life would know him to be a violent person, particularly towards women. He wouldn't be able to keep this hidden. Theory 1. Jean was murdered by someone that she knew. It is well understood that most murders are committed by someone known to the victim, around 80%. The first person that would come under suspicion when someone is murdered, is the spouse or partner. I can see little evidence, however, that Tony Challender was ever suspected of involvement. He was at work that day, and whilst the field where Jean was killed wasn't that far away from his grocer's shop, it would have taken a fair amount of time to go there, commit the crime, and return without arousing suspicion. He would also have been covered in blood, so would have had to have cleaned up before returning to the shop. Of course, the biggest reason why it is highly unlikely to have been Tony or anyone close to Jean is the fingerprint that was found at the scene, as it was compared to people in Jean's life without finding a match. 
There was a theory that the lack of a struggle and defensive wounds may be because Jean knew her attacker. After all, unless he was hiding in the field waiting to jump out, the killer would have had to walk across the fields in plain sight. The police were trying to trace people who had attended a dance class with Jean and Tony during 1953. Had someone she had met there taken an unhealthy interest in Jean, perhaps stalking her? Or was her killer perhaps a casual acquaintance? Maybe she had agreed to meet someone there. During the first few months of the investigation, Detective Inspector Mannings followed up, in his words, two important clues by interviewing family of Jean's who were living in London, as well as former colleagues there. Was the killer someone from her past? Despite rigorous inquiries, the police found no link between anyone in London and the murder. Theory 2. Jean was killed by someone who lived locally. A few things support this assumption. The numerous women who came forward after the murder to report that they had been accosted by a fair-haired man on a bicycle over the previous 12 months within the Cardiff area. The assault of Maureen Dix in November in the Roth area of Cardiff by a male cyclist also suggests a possible local link. The fact that the murder scene was relatively secluded and out of the way may indicate local knowledge of the area as does the fact that he was able to escape from the scene and avoid capture. There is the possibility that Jean's murder was at the hands of someone who worked or lived on the farmland where she was killed. The story told by the Lynna Grant farm manager's son, Gareth Thomas, and his wife May, about the strange goings-on on the farm preceding and following the murder, seems like something out of a ghost story or a crime novel particularly their sighting of the shadowy man in grey hanging around the farm and peering through the windows. If this was in fact the killer, why would he return to loiter around the farm in this way? These accounts seem a little off and raise a few red flags, but there's no real reason to disbelieve the recollections of the incident. There's no evidence that anyone from the farm was suspected of the murder, though the whole story about the creepy goings-on at the farm does seem a bit odd, and a little unbelievable. The questioning of the 40-year-old man from Adamsdown and the subsequent identity parade may mean that the police had their man, but they simply couldn't prove anything against him. There is the possibility that the culprit was local to the area, an interview by the police, but simply slipped through the net due to a lack of evidence. No other crimes of this magnitude were reported in Cardiff in the years following. So perhaps this was an offender who only committed one murder and simply blended back into society. Theory 3. Jean was killed by a serial killer. The ferocity of an attack like this occurring in the middle of the day, coupled with a lack of obvious motive, must have led police to think they were dealing with someone who had murdered before. It would explain why Scotland Yard were called in within 24 hours of the body being found. There are other murders which occurred near the time that have been linked to the murder of Jean Challender. In May 1957, the body of 35-year-old Muriel Maitland was found buried beneath a tree in Cranford Park in Middlesex, England. 
Muriel had been cycling to work when she disappeared. She had also been wearing a red raincoat, just like Jean. In this attack, there was clear evidence of a sexual assault, and Muriel had been strangled rather than bludgeoned. There was also forensic evidence that Muriel's body had initially been hidden, and the killer returned during the cover of night to bury the body. Like Jean, though, Muriel's face and head had been targeted to some extent and had been beaten. Muriel's murder is still unsolved. Later in May 1957, another body was discovered which was initially linked to Jean's case, but later discounted. Rosina Cotterell, 51, of Grove Park, South East London, was killed as she walked along a wooded road. She was found by a schoolboy, only a hundred metres or so away from her home. She had been battered around the face and head by a piece of piping that was laying across her body. There was no evidence of a sexual assault. A 15-year-old boy was tried and convicted of Rosina's murder. Apparently the boy lay in wait on the path for two days waiting for a suitable victim. He attacked Rosina and stole her empty purse. There are several additional murders that I've found that also share similarities to the killing of Jean, all of which are unsolved. Most of the following information was obtained from unsolvedmurders.co.uk. Jean Mary Townsend from Royslip, Middlesex, was 21 when she was murdered on the 15th of September 1954. That's two years to the day before Jean Challender was killed. Jean Mary was manager of the women's department of a Leicester Square store which sold theatrical and film costumes. She had been strangled with her own black and gold scarf. Jean Mary had been out with friends the night before and left them late in the evening. She was attacked on her walk from the underground station to her home. Workmen found her body at 7am the next morning, around two metres from the footpath in some waste ground near the road she lived on. The grass where she lay was flattened and it looked like there had been a struggle or the body had been dragged. Jean Mary was clothed but her shoes and stockings had been removed and were placed neatly folded by her handbag. Although her underwear had been disarranged, there was no sign of sexual assault. A theory was put forward that she may have accepted a lift from someone she knew and was killed in the car before being left at the waste ground. Jean Mary's body was found about a kilometre away from a US Air Force camp, which leads us on to another possible linked murder. Nine days before Jean Mary Townsend's murder, another woman, Ellen Carlin, was found dead in her flat in Pimlico in central London. Ellen had been strangled with a stocking and was found with a towel over her face. Her murder was linked to Jean Mary's and the primary focus was on the American Air Force camps that were situated just outside London. Ellen, who was an Irish national and went by other names including Helen Kelly and Helen Carline, was said to have been seen with an American Air Force sergeant on the night she died. Following a piece of information given by a taxi driver, a fair-haired man with a baby face was being sought. He was described as being aged 22 to 24, 5 feet 8 or 9 inches, 
although other reports had him much taller, at around six foot or six foot two. A stocky build, clean-shaven, smooth skin, and very cold, blue eyes. He was also described as, quote, a blonde American, unquote. According to unsolvedmurders.co.uk, a couple of Americans came forward to help with inquiries, saying that they were friends with Ellen. One even admitted that the towel found with Ellen was his, but claimed he did not know how it had got there. No evidence was found to link these men directly to the crime. Despite an intensive investigation, including an attempt to interview all 45,000 American airmen in the UK at the time, the case remains unsolved to this day. Although, allegedly, a person has confessed to the murder of Ellen Carlin. That confession will be addressed in more detail in a moment. The murder of Diana Sutty, who was found strangled in Leverstock Green, Hemel Hempstead, on the 7th of September 1956, also has similarities to these other murders. She was strangled with her own scarf and her shoes and stockings were removed and left next to her body. It is believed that she may have accepted a lift from her attacker and therefore knew the killer. The murder of 29-year-old Gloria Booth, also from Royslip, Middlesex, on the 13th of June 1971, is also sometimes linked to these murders due to its location. Again, all these murders are unsolved. On the 11th of July 1958, Peter Thomas Anthony Manuel, nicknamed the Beast of Birkinshaw, was hanged at Glasgow's Barlini Prison. He was sentenced to death for the murder of seven people in South Scotland between 1956 and 1958, but he is suspected of killing more. He killed men, women and children. He was also a convicted rapist. In A.M. Nichols' book, Manual, Portrait of a Serial Killer, Jean Challenger's murder is one of many that have been tentatively linked to Manual. Manual's murders include the killing of Marion Watt, Vivian Watt and Margaret Bowne on the 17th of September 1956. That's only two days after Jean was killed. As these murders happened in South Scotland, it would mean that Manuel would have had to travel from Cardiff up to Scotland following Jean's killing to commit the crimes there. This is certainly not out of the question, but worth bearing in mind. Peter Manuel seemed to kill using a variety of methods, including bludgeoning. He certainly doesn't fit the description of the fair-haired cyclist. He was dark and around 5 feet 4 inches tall, but it could be argued that his appearance is similar to the description of other men the police were looking for in the aftermath of Jean's murder. However, it is worth stating there is no clear evidence linking him to Jean's murder. This is where the story returns to the murder of Ellen Carlin. Emma Matthews, the granddaughter of Ellen, has been attempting to reignite interest in her case in a quest to find answers and justice for her grandmother. The Belfast Telegraph ran a piece on the murder in April 2021 and interviewed Emma and her stepdaughter, Lisa Deer. In this article, it stated that allegedly Peter Manuel had confessed to the murder of Ellen Carlin shortly before he was hanged. 
There is no way of confirming this confession. And even if Manuel did say this, there is no guarantee it is true. Serial killers have been known to confess to things they haven't done for various reasons. Was this just Manuel's ego? Or a way to mess with the police? One last attempt at a power play? Or perhaps it was a genuine confession? If the latter is true, it is difficult to completely discount Manuel in the murder of Jean Challender. So what did happen on that sunny Saturday when Jean set off to pick blackberries? Certainly the killer, whoever he is, would be at least 83 years of age now, probably a lot older, and most of the people involved in the case have long since passed. The police stated in 2009 that the case is not closed, so if older members of your family are local to the Cardiff area, ask them about what they remember. Perhaps it's not too late to find out who killed Jean Challender. For additional information on this case, including photographs and general information about this podcast, please seek us out on Facebook and Instagram at Persons Unknown Podcast. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please give us a five-star review on your app. Thank you for listening.